We are in a new chapter of Hebrews chapter 3, and oh, how sweet it is, but boy, two chapters already gone. I tell you, I'm trying to relish every moment of this exposition through the book of Hebrews because it is such precious terrain, but we are embarking now on a new chapter, and with a new chapter comes new vistas, new opportunities for us to see what I've entitled the entire book of Hebrews, and that is the redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're seeing here yet again. And so what this initial section does, verses 1 through 6, as Jonathan read for us, is that it begins to take the audience into a covenantal comparison between old and new. I mean, that is what the book of Hebrews is renowned for, is this comparison of old and new, and really of lifting up and magnifying the supremacy of the old, of the new over the old. And he does this by moving us from Moses to Jesus. In other words, the movement of the book of Hebrews is linear. We are moving historically, redemptively, through God's story as we go from old to new. And that's exactly what's going on here. He takes us from old to new. He takes us from Moses to Jesus. He takes us from the old covenant offices to what we could say the threefold offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews is all about. Because Jesus embodies all of these roles, he becomes the soul and the substance of our confession. That confession that we see there in verse 1. And he also becomes the essence of our hope there in verse 6. So we begin and we end with Christ as the very content, as the very soul, as the very essence of our faith. The present context here is thoroughly covenantal. That is to say that he, ba- he brings covenantal language to bear at this point to show us both continuity and discontinuity. In other words, he uses covenant language from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, in order to show us that what we have now in Christ is has a, a continuity. In other words, it's that Christ is not starting a new religion, but he's bringing in the fulfillment. He's bringing in the redemptive prophetic fulfillment to all of God's promises. And Scripture speaks about this everywhere. Of course, the book of Hebrews is filled with covenantal language. I mean, just think about the the section in the book of Hebrews just on the priesthood, which is going to span, really, chapter 5 all the way you know, mid, midway through chapter 7, a whole two and a half chapters just on the priesthood. And so if you're bored by me talking about the priesthood, well, <clears throat> you have to figure something out. You might want to start taking notes or something because we're going to be in priesthood language for a long time. But you know, the Bible talks about all of these covenantal terms elsewhere. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 just to bring you... Maybe some language that you're used to, and that is from Paul. I mean, we spent two years in 2 Corinthians, and we know what 2 Corinthians was all about, and we saw that. But in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, as he does, talks about his ministry, and he describes it in covenantal terms, in such beautiful covenantal terms, again, showing us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So if you would, this is, this is sort of like um, Paul's commentary on the book of Hebrews right here. 
And this is uh, 2 Corinthians 3.7. It says, But if the ministry of death, that is the old covenant, in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even with more glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, that is the old covenant, in this case has no glory at all, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For it was, it was that which fades away was with glory much more that which remains is in glory. You see the comparisons there. You see the contrast. You see the, the comparative language that he uses there over and over. More glory, even more, much more. And that is exactly what the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is better. Jesus is more, more glory in the face of Jesus. More faithfulness, a better priest, a better prophet, a better king. And that is what Jesus is. In a broad sense, this section describes and sets forth Jesus as better and superior to Moses, but I also want you to see that this whole section here, chapter 3, and then moving into chapter 4, really, um, we need to outline it a little bit more specifically. What is the author of Hebrews doing? Because he doesn't just talk about Moses, but he also talks about Joshua, mainly comprised of chapter 4. And so what we can say is that what Hebrews is doing is it's setting forth the redemptive supremacy of Jesus. And when I say redemptive supremacy, what do I mean? Uh, because I think some of you um, hear me say that probably every week, redemptive supremacy, redemptive supremacy. That is to say that in God's story, his history, his storyline from Genesis to Christ, from Adam to Christ, what we're seeing is the unfolding of God's redemption for his people. And that's what I mean. And so what Hebrews is displaying for us is the supremacy of Christ in that as he establishes a new covenant through his blood and then he uses Moses and Joshua as an example of his supremacy, pointing out the typological and prophetic fulfillment that each one of them represents as Moses represents a faithful servant in the house of God. Joshua represents a leader of God that could not lead God's people to final rest. And that is exactly what the book is doing at this juncture. The reason for this is, th is that through Jesus, God's Sabbath rest is realized now and forever. Chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 9 make that plain. Here, the author of Hebrews begins to give shape to the supremacy of Christ's new covenant redemption, by identifying three things. Now follow along with me because these are my three points. Identifying the covenant community of God, the covenant mediator of God, and the covenant obligations of God's people. So number one, the new covenant community. And this is the way that he describes them. Therefore, going back to Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, of our confession. 
So with this opening description, what the author of Hebrews gives us here is several things. He gives us a description of the people. He gives the people directives to follow and also a declaration of their confession. So first, this description, the term holy brethren, and then those who have become partakers of a heavenly calling. Amazing language. Holy brethren is deeply covenantal. This is why I said he begins now to really use covenantal language to describe the new covenant people of God. And the beginning of that language begins with hagias, holy, holy ones, because this is what the covenant people of God were always intended to be. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, interesting to find out or interesting to note. If you turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, which is just right after Hebrews, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Peter brings this identical language that is rooted in the Old Testament, brings this identical language and applies it to the new covenant church. And look at how he does this. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, he says, you are a chosen race. Remember that verse I just quoted from Deuteronomy? I chose you from among the people from, uh, to be a people for my own possession. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And that's what Exodus says. You were to be a kingdom of priests, holy, a holy nation. Peter says, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Glorious, glorious description of the New Testament church and what we're supposed to be. Notice that? We're not just called out just for election's sake. We're not just chosen just to be chosen. We're not just his possession just to be his possession. We have a purpose which is missional or evangelistic. Missional is just a little too emergent for me. Sorry for using that term. It's one of those pet peeves. You know, it's evangelistic. So that you may proclaim. That is the reason that we have been chosen. That is the purpose that we serve so that we could proclaim his excellencies. And God teaches us everywhere. Everywhere in the New Testament, we are chosen for specific purposes. Above all, though, it is to be holy. It is to be sanctified. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling. The calling to be holy is only the logical outcome of our holy future. We are called to holiness now because we will be perfectly sanctified and glorified in the future as we receive the end of our faith that is the salvation of our souls. This is our heavenly calling that Hebrews is referring to here. Now, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul makes the same connection. He reconciled you. This is Colossians 1.22. He reconciled you in his, flesh through, uh, in his fleshly body through death 
in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach that can only happen in Christ. So this is our heavenly calling. This is our eschatological calling. This is our future glory. This is our future hope. But it has present effects now. And watch this. We have not only been called to be holy, but we are also partakers. You see that language there? We have become partakers of a heavenly calling. Being a partaker is also covenant language. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2, because the Apostle Paul begins to talk about this word, partakers. The Greek word is metakos. He's going to use a compound form of that verb in a minute in chapter 3, but chapter 2 introduces the concept. It introduces the idea. Chapter 2, not surprisingly, prepares us for chapter 3. But look at what chapter 2 says in verse 11. This is where the covenant language is rooted. It's grounded in all of this. You see this? Therefore, verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at at that time separated from Christ. See, this is the opposite of being a partaker. You are separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. There is the explicit covenantal connection. You are strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. What a dire description. Can be any worse for the state of any soul than to be described by this verse right here. I mean, who wants to be described as separate, excluded, strangers, no hope, without God in the world? That's pretty dismal language. But later in Ephesians, flip over to chapter 3, please. Later in Ephesians, this covenantal language resurfaces again, where Paul now begins to talk about, as he emphasizes here, Gentile inclusion, the idea of being a metakos, or sumetakos, which means a fellow partaker. Look at this. To be specific, this is his message. This is what he came to preach, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers. You see that? Very literal here, the NASB, if you have an NASB. Very literal translation. Fellow partakers of the promise. Now, we know that the idea of promise, the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, we know that the idea of promise, that we are now a partaker of this promise, is rooted in what he called the covenants of promise. So... We are connected to this covenant language. But in Hebrews, the emphasis is on the heavenly. And the book of Hebrews is fascinating for that reason. The book of Hebrews often takes us from earth to heaven. It tells us what was going on in the tabernacle arrangement on earth and how it was symbolic and reflective of the ultimate reality of the tabernacle in heaven. And there's this constant earthly, heavenly earthly heavenly dualism that the book of Hebrews will engage in. But here we are told that our calling is heavenly. So glorious. 
So beautiful to know that we have been called with a heavenly calling. That is to say, we're headed to heaven. That is to say, our calling is in accordance with heaven. That is to say that our, our, our calling is eschatological. It is future. It is glorious. It is redemptive. And ultimately, it has to do with our ultimate final status, our ultimate residence with God in heaven and the book of Hebrews actually has different ways of talking about this, but that we and our calling is much greater than, 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 than what happens in time and space here. It is more significant than the temple, the tabernacle, Sinai, a geographical location. We have an upward call in Christ Jesus, to use Paul's words. And Hebrews has different ways of talking about this. It does. In chapter 11, you remember the Old Testament patriarchs were looking for a heavenly country. And also the church is in heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, where the church of the firstborn is at. That's where our true citizenship resides. And that's why we have this holy calling. Now, that is sort of a description of the covenant people of God, but the author also gives us a directive, a very specific directive. Look at the text again. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, and then what comes as one of the very first imperatives of the letter, consider Jesus. Oh, that's just huge. I hope you, if you're one of those that writes in your Bible, you know, you desecrate your Bible like that, okay, God will forgive you, but... If you write in your Bible, this is one to circle right here. Circle this, highlight it, underline it, memorize it, because it is so weighty that the exposition of this whole passage hinges on this one imperative. An imperative is a command. So this is explicitly what the text is commanding us to do, right? People like rules. People like steps. Just tell me what to do. Have you, are you that type of person? I just need to know what to do and I'll do it, right? Well, here he gives us one step, and that is consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. A phenomenal word, consider. This word consider is used by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 20 and verse 23 when he, when he considers that they are trying to trick him with his words. They're trying to trap him, and it says in Luke 20, 23, he detected their trickery. <laughs> That's the way it's translated there. In other words, the word carries within it a sense of investigation, a sense of aha, a sense of discovery for us. And we discover all of the truths of Jesus, the significance of Jesus. In other words, chapter 1, Jesus greater than angels, enthroned. He is the enthroned Son of God who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter 2, Jesus is lower than angels, meaning he became a man. He dwelt among us. He was one of us. He became one of us. He partook of flesh and blood. He suffered through death in order to redeem us. Therefore, consider Jesus. This is how great he is. This is how great the redemption is that he has brought. Now, what about this redemption? This moves me to the next point. Not just the contemplation of Christ, not just the consideration of the supremacy of Christ, but then the third thing, there is a declaration. And by declaration, I mean something like a constitutional declaration of who the people of God are. Watch this. Consider Jesus, 
the apostle and the high priest of our confession, of our confession. This is how God has gathered us. He has gathered us around a common confession, the leader or the head or the focal point of which is Jesus, our apostle and our high priest. As an apostle, we know what the word apostle means. It means someone who has been sent. That's what the word apostle means, apostolos, a sent one. And we know that Jesus was indeed sent. God sent his son into the world. God sent his son to redeem us, to save us from our sin. And so that really looks back to everything that he's talked about already. But then he says he is also consequently our high priest. He doesn't just come to rescue us, but then he also comes to represent us. That's what a priest does. He comes to represent us to God and to represent God to the people. We looked at that last week when we considered the, um, the significance of the Old Testament high priest. The fact that he was to be decked out in glory and splendor. The Bible says that they were to clothe him so that he would be beautiful and glorious that he that he would represent honor and power and that was a representative of God that he would come as a representative of God's glory power and honor and also he would bear the ephod that had all the gems and all the all the the stones that represented the names of the of the, of the tribes of Israel as a representation that on the heart of the priests were the names of his people and that he would bring that to God. And so who is Jesus? Jesus is the high priest who has your name written upon his heart. And he brings it to God before the throne of God into the Holy of Holies. Where he makes perfect sacrifice and atonement for your sin so that you can be accepted to God. Glorious. That's what it means. Consider Jesus. He is our high priest. The priest of our confession. And what is this confession? It's not that Jesus is apostle and priest. That's not the confession itself. The confession itself is undefined. But theologians and commentators sort of debate this. Where, where do we find the meaning of this confession? Well, probably the confession is none other than the confession that Jesus is Lord. That is the prototypical, ultimate confession of the New Covenant Church. Jesus Christ is Lord. As Paul says in Romans 10, you must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, right, that God rose him from the dead. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that remarkable? So this is what distinguishes the new covenant people of God. Your ability to either confess Christ as Lord or not confess Christ as Lord. And the implication there of, second, of 1 Corinthians 12 is that if you don't confess Christ as Lord by the Spirit of God, then, then, then because you lack the Spirit of God, Christ will by necessity be a curse to you. Be a curse. If he's not your Lord, then he will be a curse to you. He'll be a stumbling block to your ambitions and your personal pursuits in this life. In this life. So that is the declaration of our confession. That is the 
We could say it's synonymous. The confession is synonymous with the gospel. It is synonymous with the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' message. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Now, that is something about the new covenant people. What about the new covenant mediator? This is the next section, and it exemplifies the backdrop of Hebrews and the need for the the congregation here to understand the significance of Jesus, what he means for their lives. For the Jewish mind, listen, listen, for the Jewish mind, there could be nothing more significant than someone to tell you, you are now moving on from Moses to something else. That is huge for a Jewish mind. You are moving on from Moses as your covenant head to something else. As a matter of fact, what Hebrews is saying is God moved on. So you had better move on as well, lest you get left behind in what God is doing redemptively among his people. It's very, very significant. This is precisely what Hebrews is teaching. The entire Mosaic economy is being surpassed, and it is being, in that sense, replaced The reason for this is because we know that we have now a better mediator in Jesus Christ who has greater glory than Moses. Look at verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. In other words, we're seeing in the work of Jesus Christ a faithfulness that corresponds to something. You follow the, follow the thought there. This is a corresponding faithfulness. To what? It is corresponding to Moses. How? Because Moses was faithful in all of his house. See that word house? What's that talking about? His house. So is this Moses being faithful to clean his house? Is this Moses being faithful to mow his lawn, mow the lawn of his house? What is this talking about, being faithful in his house? Is it talking about the temple? Is it talking about the tabernacle? I would would argue that based on verse 6, the word house refers primarily to the people of God. As he goes on to say, we are his house if we hold fast. Consequently, in the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly called the house of God, his house. But this is also alluding to, and then in verse 5, quoting directly from Numbers chapter 12. Now, if you go there with me, yes, I'm going to make you crack open the Old Testament. Go to Numbers chapter 12 and look with me at the context of which these, from which these words come from. Where, where, this is where it's all rooted. It's rooted in the context of Exodus, of Exodus, where Moses and his faithfulness is put on display. Uh, we can begin talking about this in verse 6. It says, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so my, with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. We could just say, he is faithful in all my house, right? With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. In other words, 
As Moses was faithful to God in the face of opposition, as here he is being opposed by Aaron and by Miriam for marrying a Cushite woman, he is opposed by the people throughout the book of Moses. He's opposed. And that's why it says earlier there in Numbers chapter 12 there, it says that Moses was the most humble man on earth. Interesting description of himself and some would say he was, he was not so much that he was humbled, that he was a humble man, but that he was humiliated. Uh, that would certainly make sense, and the Hebrew could even suggest that. But in the same way that he was opposed, think of Jesus' opposition to his own people, his own house, at least as far as John chapter 1, verse 11 is concerned, where it says, He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. He was opposed. It's also clear from Hebrews that Moses, as the meteor of the Old Testament, was himself a type. He was a foreshadow. Look at this remarkable, remarkable statement here in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Watch this because this is sort of a purpose clause. For a testimony... Of the things which were to be spoken later. What? That's right. What you're looking at in Numbers chapter 12 is done as a testimony to the things that would be spoken later. Spoken by who? Well, this is what theologians call a divine passive. God would speak of better things than Moses later. Moses was just a type. He was just a symbol. He was just a shadow, a prefigure of what God is speaking now. Isn't that remarkable? So that's exactly what, this, that's, that's why that's how the book of Hebrews opens up. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, let me turn there so I don't mess it up. Long ago, it says, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken. Well, this is what Hebrews is saying. These are the things that will be spoken later through his son, Jesus Christ. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Like Moses, Jesus was God's appointed mediator. Jesus overcame through humility and suffering, just like Moses. Jesus was opposed by his own family, just like Moses. Jesus had direct revelation from God, just like Moses. Jesus had a unique communion with God, just like Moses. Jesus was face-to-face with God, just like Moses, or in an even a more unique way. And finally, uh, to stand against Jesus incurs the wrath of God. But again, there are contrasts. There are similarities with Moses, but then there are contrasts to Moses. Moses, look at verse 5. Moses is a servant. Jesus is a son. Moses received glory, but Jesus is worthy of more glory. Verse 3. Moses does not possess intrinsic inherent worth, value, but his value is derived from the Creator. Like the value of a house is derived from the builder who built it. Moses is like the house. Jesus is like the builder. And unlike Moses, if you oppose Jesus, it could have eternal consequences that are much dire than Miriam being turned leprous. Much more dire than that. What all this means, of course, is that Jesus 
is a greater leader. He's a leader of a greater exodus. You think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. He took captivity captive. He gave gifts to man. Well, that is quoted in Psalm 68, speaking about the people coming to Sinai. In other words, the exodus. Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses. He is the prophet of whom Moses wrote. His redemption is not national. It is spiritual. So when we sing that song, he has saved his favorite nation. I don't know what you're thinking, but I am not thinking of Jewish people. I'm thinking of God's spiritual people. I'm thinking about the people of God, the new covenant people of God. I'm thinking about me. I'm glad that I'm in his favorite nation. It is a spiritual nation, the spiritual people. This is what Peter O'Brien had to say in his fantastic commentary in Hebrews. Listen to this. He says, Moses bore testimony to the things that God was expected to utter and which the author of Hebrews now knows were revealed in the Son. From an eschatological perspective, Moses stood with those through whom God spoke in the past, and yet, in some senses, he anticipated what was to come. And there he is quoting 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, where the prophets anticipate the things that the Spirit of Christ is telling them to prophesy about. What a remarkable thing indeed. In Hebrews chapter 11, Moses is said to prefer the reproach of Christ than, than, than to give in to the pleasures of Egypt. Just remarkable. Now, let's move on to the covenant obligations. That's something about our covenant mediator, and we will say so much more about that. But let's move on to the covenant obligations. There are two places in this chapter where we see our duty as God's people. Number one, it is there in verse 6. If we hold fast. You see that? If we hold fast. So it is spoken of positively, and then it is referred to negatively. Look at verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in you an unbelieving, an, sorry, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. These are our obligations. This is our duty as new covenant members that we would, above all, believe. Or another way to say that is that we would, above all, not fail to believe that we would not drift away. He's already said that. Remember back in chapter 2? Look at chapter 2, verse 1 again. I remind you, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Amazing. Same thing that we're being exhorted to do right here, to hold fast. And what does it mean, therefore, to hold fast? Are you holding fast today? Well, maybe we should define the word to hold fast. Kateko, this word means to, to, to retain both uh, a conviction of something that you believe. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, it says, here the apostle Paul praises the church for being dogmatic. 
<laughs> something completely countercultural today, right? Something totally politically unacceptable today. You dare believe that you are right? <laughs> you dare believe in dogma? You dare believe in certain unnegotiable truths? Yeah, that's right. And Paul says, now I praise you. I praise you because you remember me in everything and you hold firm. That's that same word. To the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Now, what does he mean by traditions there? Well, he's talking about the apostolic doctrine of the gospel. Also, 1 Corinthians 15.2, same thing. By which you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In other words, to hold fast has this idea of holding to your conviction. Is your conviction worth holding on to? This is what Hebrews is saying. Do you have a conviction and then are you holding fast to the things that you are convicted about regarding Jesus Christ? As you think about what Jesus did, what he accomplished, as you think about the gospel, is there a conviction there? Do you stand up for your convictions at work? When you have an opportunity to say something, but you don't say anything, say something. <laughs> You're not in Afghanistan. It's okay. Open your mouth. Be brave. Take a risk. Who cares how people look at you? When you have an opportunity to represent the king, represent him. This is why I have no tolerance. I, I saw a video once with Larry King, okay? How about, you know, Larry King. Not the most exciting thing to watch on evening news, but Larry King, this time it was exciting because he had on the panel John MacArthur. He had a rabbi. How many of you have seen shows like that? But he also had Max Licato on the, on the show. And Larry King asked, asked Max Licato if Jesus is the only way to heaven. And Max Licato said, I choose Jesus. And Larry King, who's, not a, who's you know, good at inter, in, in interrogating people, said, but wait a minute, but doesn't that by implication mean that you choose him because he is the best choice and the only choice? Again, Max Licato, I choose Jesus. But aren't you saying that he's the only way to heaven then? I choose Jesus. That is not what I mean by representing the king. And uh, don't hold your breath because the next person he asked was John MacArthur. John MacArthur, is Jesus the only way? Absolutely, Larry, he's the only way to heaven. You know, that's how you do it. <laughs> that's called holding fast, conviction, having a conviction about a certain dogma. That's what the word means and that's what we are to be as well. Don't be afraid to hold to your convictions. Don't be afraid to hold to your conviction. This conviction really has two parts to it. Notice, it comes with it a certain boldness and a certain boasting. You see that? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. That's, that's remarkable. So we have to hold fast. We have to have conviction about, number one, what we are confident about. Right? And that word confident, just like the word boast, has everything to do with your speech. So the word confidence actually speaks about what you speak about. That's what the etymology of the word suggests. So both of them are talking about what we say with our mouth. 
What are we confident about, though? What is our hope? I guess the simple answer to that, when he's saying here, hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm till the end, what is the confidence? What is the boast of our hope? Again, I would refer you back to chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, I think, is where he sort of gives us exactly what he means by this. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Our salvation is our hope. That is what our hope is all about. But as the word hold fast suggests, it is the conviction of that. It is the idea that we will not play fast and loose with the gospel. It is the idea that the gospel is not negotiable. You know, there's so much language out there right now in the blogosphere and in evangelicalism about reimagining Christianity, reimagining uh, um, uh, the gospel, reimagining Jesus, reimagining the gospels, right? So what I would say is that the gospel does not need to be reimagined. The gospel just needs to be reiterated, needs to be reiterated. And uh, I just read a, uh, a very disturbing article on the Christian Post that spoke about this very thing. It talked about, how many of you remember the emergent church, right? Well, for those of you that were interested in, in, in combating or refuting or engaging the emergent church, well, you would think, well, the emergent church is kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of not relevant anymore, pardon the pun. But, you know, the emergent church has kind of faded away. But this article, the Christian Post, uh, said that, no, actually, the philosophy of the emergent, that the emergent church taught is really uh, spread farther than ever. And uh, there was a lady that actually did a study on this, and there was a, a gentleman who was part of the original group of people with Brian McLaren that started the emergent church who broke away from the emergent church because he saw that it was going into apostasy, ultimately, and wrote a book about it and talked about how emergent ideas non-anti-institutional, you know, anti-authoritarian, anti-church, basically, ideas have been, basically, have, have, have been, you know, pervading the evangelical church now for years through youth leaders and youth pastors and, and through staff of the church that, that it really has spread wider than ever. Brian McLaren is celebrating the influence of emergent ideas, of emergent ideas. But folks, what the emergent church is saying is that Christianity needs to be rethought all over again. We need to rethink how we're doing church. We need to rethink how we're communicating the gospel. We need to reimagine Christ himself. What was he really teaching? Well, no, folks, what this is telling us is that we hold to the conviction, to the dogma that was given to us by the apostles. So we don't move. We don't shift. We don't move. If we want to have our hope to be firm and solid, we have to confess the faith. Notice the word here. We have to hold firm our confidence, the boast of our hope, which is our salvation in Christ, firm until the end. And then what is the lesson? What is the example of that? In verse 7 all the way to verse 11, the lesson of that is the apostasy of Israel, which we will consider, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Father, there's, there's far too much compromise all around. And when we look what's going on outside of our little reform circles, 
Truly, we find that there is compromise everywhere, and even within reform circles, there is sometimes compromise on even a greater level, doctrinal level. But Father, help us never to lose sight of the cross. Help us never to lose sight of our conviction of what makes us the new covenant people of God, namely the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we know that the gospel in every generation is under attack, is always under assault by the enemies of the gospel. And, Father, to whatever degree, maybe we're not the apologists in the church. Maybe we're not the ones that are going to defend the faith out at the, 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 the college campus or wherever. Maybe we're the shy type. Maybe we're the timid type. But, Father, one thing is clear. We are called to hold fast. And so and at any time you give any one of us opportunity, loosen our tongues, open our mouths, help us not to ever misrepresent the king. Lord, this will we do firm till the end. And it's only by grace, Lord. It's, oh, we confess our inadequacy. We confess that like Peter, we are simply not sufficient for these things, Lord. We are inadequate, and we need you to give us courage, to give us boldness in a very, in a very uh, cowardly generation. Make us men and women of conviction, of principle, for your glory and your namesake, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.